0: Ukraine and prisons. Legitimacy and Lombards. A bit of a mixed bag this time. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So I'm going to be travelling for the next couple of weeks, or most of the next couple of weeks, and although I hope to provide patrons with one or two little short written updates, given that I didn't want to leave everyone hanging, I thought I'd record just a short episode in which I address a couple of big and a couple of smaller questions that crop up. The first one, of course, is, what else could it be, but Ukraine, in which, ironically, we're in a situation where there's lots happening and there's not much happening. What do I mean by this? Well, we still have the presence and the presumed continued build-up of troops, more than 90,000 Russians, on or around Ukraine's border, which is significant and we're getting a lot of deep concern being expressed, which, as I said in a previous piece, really is presumably driven by some kind of intelligence that suggests they have a sense of serious and worrying Russian intent. Because, remember, 90,000 troops is a substantial force, but it is not an overwhelming one when we're talking about tangling with the entire Ukrainian military even with the very real increases in Russian military capabilities, which are substantial and, let's be honest, are, however much the Ukrainians had improved, still disproportionately powerful, it means that while the Russians can strike at Ukraine without any question, they certainly cannot in any way guarantee for themselves an easy win. But still, the fundamental question we come back to is, why Why is all this happening? Why create such a moment of tension at a time when, in some ways, in wider terms, things seem to be going, I wouldn't say the Russians' way, because that implies a certain zero-sumness, but certainly they actually have certain reasons for a degree of satisfaction. Well, the first main reason that tends to be adduced is this notion that Russia is concerned that its red lines are... Either being crossed or at risk of being crossed, and therefore that's why it needs to either make a really strong and serious gesture to say, please take us seriously because we will act if we feel we have to, or actually prepare for some kind of preemptive or reactive mood. In in result. And it's quite interesting that we have had a series of voices of the kind of people who tend to be the usual articulate and authoritative explainers of Kremlin policy, and in some ways also their sugarcoaters coming out on this. We had Fyodor Lukyanov, Dmitry Trenin, Ivan Timofeev. You know, these are all the people who do tend to channel Kremlin thinking, but with a much, much more West friendly veneer, at least to it. And they're all saying the same thing, that the Kremlin feels that it is being ignored. It is being taken for granted, its interests, its core existential as it sees its security interests in Ukraine in particular are not being addressed and that it cannot allow this to happen because after a certain point it becomes almost impossible to reverse the process. Now it's obvious that the notion of NATO or probably even European Union membership crosses that red line. Also, we had recently um, Putin making it clear that it's more than that. It's also about the notion of NATO security architecture finding itself in Ukraine. And he made this point about, well, in the guise of, for example, training facilities, there could be missiles based around Kharkiv and pointed towards Russia. So it's not just something as formal as NATO membership. It's also this notion of a creeping process, Of NATO being in Ukraine. And this is the interesting and challenging dilemma because if you think about it precisely because Ukraine clearly is under threat its sovereignty which is meant to be guaranteed by international law is being challenged by Moscow and at the same time if we're honest about it there is no way that NATO troops would ever intervene directly in support of the Ukrainians, if the Russian attacked. I mean, actually, the European Union has made it really explicit. They said that there'll be diplomatic and economic and political support, but not military. The Americans, unfortunately, continue to use this formula that sort of nothing is off the table, which I think is meant to guarantee strategic ambiguity the idea that it'll intimidate the Russians. In practice, they know perfectly well that what it means what it doesn't mean and therefore i think in some ways it's counterproductive but but there you go but the point is if nato troops are not going to be doing it then all really the west can do in all conscience is actually support ukraine so that it can defend itself as far as possible and i'll be honest although some people say oh that's that's provocation and so forth i think that's entirely right and proper just because Russia is picking up a fuss about it, it does not mean that we should not be helping the Ukrainians in this respect. But of course, when we do that, when we have training missions, when we sell them new advanced hardware or in some cases even give it to them, when we do all these kinds of things, the risk is that this either is genuinely perceived in Moscow as actually some kind of NATO penetration using Ukraine like some kind of forward basing area. Or at least it can be spun as such. And the trouble is, we don't really know how Moscow genuinely sees the situation. And that might help explain why now of all times. Because at the moment, clearly, we have a much, much more strong, strident, insert your adjective of choice, line coming from Kyiv. We've had this, admittedly, frankly, rather bizarre uh, press conference by Zelensky, in which he talked about clear evidence of a coup being arranged and so forth. I'll be honest, if you actually have solid evidence that there's a a Russian-backed coup being organised against you, then the outcome should be arrests and prosecutions, not a snarky press conference. Anyway, at the same time, Although you will hear people say, oh, no one in Kiev is thinking about any kind of military reconquista of the Donbass, let alone Crimea. Of course there are. They're a fantastically small minority. They do not have any serious impact on policy, I think. I hope, but I think. But the point is, they're there. There are those people, and disproportionately these are people within the military and the security apparatus who do talk about a day and a day that's coming and a day that's getting close when exactly just such an operation will carry out now I may not think that they're serious you may not think they're serious my big concern is because clearly these are exactly the kind of people that Russia's intelligence apparatus will be monitoring because in their point of view they're the dangerous ones My concern is that instead of treating them as a blowhard fringe, that Moscow might be taking them seriously, might think that somehow they are actually articulating what is the secret desire of the Zelensky administration. Because this is one of the problems. We we found this, and actually I'll, I'll come on to it in another context in a moment, that many Western commentators and even analysts do look to certain kind of, again, fringe Russian voices, or the kind of toxic commentators for whom actually their job is precisely to say outlandish and extreme things about the West and the threat it poses to Russia and so forth, and treat that somehow as if these people are channeling the Kremlin zeitgeist. Well, so too, the Kremlin could be just as easily miscalculating dramatically and seriously what's going on in Ukraine, These people, and look, I mean, I, I remember myself once being in Kiev, and being harangued by, I'll keep this as general as possible, but, you know, a, a middling senior military officer with a very distinguished career who absolutely was telling me, and I think with, with, with total confidence and sincerity, about how Ukraine was going to take back the Donbass and how ultimately the Americans, when push came to shove, would, would be backing them up. That will not happen. Neither element of that. But on the other hand, if other people also were listening to that same conversation, people who were reporting back to Moscow, it's possible that this gets, this kind of thing, I wouldn't say that particular conversation, but this kind of thing precisely gets elevated. And when seen through the, let's be honest, rather paranoid filters of the people at the top of the system, people at the top of the system who, after all, do believe that the Euromaidan revolution was a CIA plot, who do believe that Ukraine isn't really an independent country after all and ought to be part of the sort of loving fraternal embrace of the Slavic people, well, maybe for them they actually think that there is something happening in Ukraine that they have to stop. And if not that, well, maybe they have something else in mind. I mean, to some, this is an attempt to extort another presidential summit with the Americans. After all, that's what happened this spring. I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not entirely convinced for two reasons. One is that I don't think they tried the same trick twice. And secondly, that I don't think that they were actually aiming specifically for a presidential summit in spring. It's just that's the, uh, the goody that came out of their, their little gambit and they thought, fine, we'll take that. But nonetheless, it's possible. And that will be in line with a sort of wider Kremlin desire for some kind of new grand bargain, some kind of new Yalta, a sort of geopolitical understanding that gives it a sphere of influence and gives it, and in this respect, I have a small, slight little glimmer of sympathy, but gives them some sense of predictability. Because the thing I get is that I don't feel that the current Kremlin really knows where it stands, really knows what the rules of the international order are. Because let's be honest, we have rules, but they do get flouted and breached at every time. So I think there is, there is a yearning for some kind of, of certainty. And also, if we're thinking about Putin and his grand historical legacy, while I'm sure bringing all of Ukraine back into the fold would be great, it's hard to believe that he doesn't know perfectly well or isn't being told perfectly well that this would come at massive cost, cost in terms of lives, cost in terms of Russia's diplomatic position, its economic status, etc., etc., So it may be that instead some kind of new Yalta would be enough to make him feel as if he's genuinely laying down his marker on on Russia's history. And so to this end, really what the Russians have to do is to look as scary as possible. I mean, I think the problem, or one particular problem, is that they have internalised the lesson, and let's be perfectly honest, the West has entirely encouraged this, that Russia only gets treated seriously when it's a problem for the West. As far as the Russians are concerned, and when I say the Russians, I mean the Kremlin is concerned, when they cooperate, when they're good boys, that's, that's nice, but they don't get anything out of it. If they want to get, out to get something out of it, they have to break the rules. And this is why it's interesting that we see a particular attempt to amplify this notion that the current situation is really dangerous and there is the risk of some kind of accidental war that will spiral out of control. Now, look, I do believe that there is the scope for individual sort of local um, such inadvertent escalations. You know, some soldier somewhere uh, fires accidentally on, on, on the line, some um, Donbass militiamen, provokes a firefight and other people get brought in but I also believe that there are mechanisms there precisely to limit and de-escalate this thing but the point is the Russians want to talk up this issue and it's something that in here in the UK we had Ambassador Kirlin very explicitly stating this so the Russians want to talk up this this threat because precisely they want to scare us they want to make us feel that it is in the interests of us all to Give the Russians enough to keep them satisfied that, in effect, we need to buy off Armageddon. Now, look, I mean, yes, let's be perfectly honest, although it always sticks in the craw to be rewarding aggression, it may be that some kind, something needs to be given to the Russians to at least get them to, to stand down and to at least try and open up the rather clotted arteries of communication. But at the same time, we need to know why we're doing it and we need to know what we're going to get from that. However, I really would want to restate a point I've already been making, which is I do not believe that the Kremlin has a single very, very specific objective that they are trying to nudge us towards with their dastardly reflexive control methods and so forth. Rather, I think they're just trying to see what they can get out of the situation that they feel that this is one in which either they have some particular opportunity or I do feel that they they may feel that uh, a window of opportunity is closing or that some threats are arising and that they feel they need to do something now to avert that now that means that military action is not only not imminent it is from the Russians point of view not ideal it's there on the table I'm sure but it is not their first option And to that end, I would adduce just one point, is that although, again, there are certain quarters from which one can hear all kinds of blood-curdling things, particularly the sort of toxic TV commentators, who are anyway essentially state-sanctioned shock jocks, their job is to say ridiculous and outlandish things. And in some ways, I think their place within the, the media sphere is more kind of perverse entertainment rather than en- anything more serious. And yes, if you look at them now, you will suddenly think, good gosh, the Russian population are being prepared for war, and you will see some some of the commentary act talking to that effect. But the key point to make is they're always saying this thing. What I think is striking and what I think is encouraging is that I have not seen either a particular change in how the geopolitical shock jocks talk, Or, more to the point, any wider campaign to talk up the issue as a serious struggle and therefore to prepare the Russians for the inevitability, as it would be, of war. So, after all this time, what am I going to tell you? I'm going to tell you I still don't know. The only thing that makes me a little bit more willing to admit that without feeling like a total failure is that at the moment... I'm not entirely convinced the Kremlin knows how this is going to play out either. So we're all in the dark. It's problematic. It is indeed potentially dangerous. It is not, in my opinion, though, a situation where we are sleepwalking to Armageddon, which counts as the best news I can give you on this story. Then let me shift to another totally different story, but again one that I think is, is it's worth dwelling on, which is change at the top of the thoroughly scandal-ridden sin the Federal Correction Service, or if you actually want to give a more kind of literal translation, the Federal Service for the Imposition of Punishment, that really does sound a lot more scary when it's translated. And frankly, yes, the Russian system, prison system, is pretty damn scary. And particularly what's striking is, I mean, although there had been slow and limited, but very real reform of what was a pretty ghastly prison service, Um, Way back in, I think it was 2011, in a blog post, I sort of gave them a a B-plus with caveats. And certainly we've seen um, shrinkage in the prison population, less overcrowding. I mean, I wish I could say no overcrowding, but less overcrowding. And also some kind of moves to try to address such endemic problems as, for example, drug-resistant TB within the prison system. late, though, definitely got a sense that there's a degree of backsliding. Especially uh, violence inside the prisons. And it's hard to see how far that is uh, a result of policy, of neglect, or resources. And this very much came to a head with the recent uh, release by uh, prison reform NGO gulagu.net of a huge cache of videos, quite, quite horrific videos, of ghastly and sadistic torture of inmates including things like rape by implements and so forth, I'm not going to go into any more detail, carried out by and or on behalf of prison authorities in some specific prisons. Now, again, obviously this is particularly awful cases and doesn't happen always and all the time, but nonetheless, you know, it was enough that even a rather sort of jaded population got quite horrified by it. And so it's perhaps not too surprising that Putin dismissed the previous head of SIN, Alexander Kalashnikov, which also incidentally gave people a chance to use the rather splendid headline, Putin Fires Kalashnikov, and replaced him with Arkady Gostev. Now, officially Kalashnikov had asked to retire, um, but the interesting thing is that what this has meant is that a 57-year-old is stepping down and being replaced by a 60-year-old. More to the point, this is actually a, a very interesting choice because Kalashnikov had come from the FSB, the Federal Security Service, and he was very much seen, although he, you know, at first tried to talk the talk of a reformist sin chief, but was very much seen as the FSB's placeholder there. On the other hand, Colonel General Gostev, as he is, was a deputy interior minister, and not just a career police officer but a career Moscow police officer. Since 1981, he had risen from regular beat officer to investigator to chief of staff of the Southern Moscow District Police, which is, it has to be said, one of the toughest and roughest neighbourhoods, to heading the city's public security directorate, which isn't quite as Orwellian as it sounds, becoming deputy Moscow chief of police, before being tapped by Interior Minister Kolokoltsev as one of his deputy ministers, and it wasn't and still isn't impossible that he could actually be a future interior minister. So so this is a guy who is blue through and through. We know that he's an enthusiastic collector and restorer of old Soviet motorbikes, but beyond that, first of all, he is a Kolokoltsev man, and so whereas before the FSB really had become a dominant force within the prison system, now... Well that's not quite necessarily the case. And it's interesting because once upon a time the MVD, the Interior Ministry actually controlled the prison system. It's not just a Kolokoltsev man, he's also quite closely linked to Moscow Mayor Sabyanin's team. I honestly don't know if it's Sabyanin himself or just people within his team. But either way, um, you know, there definitely seems to be some kind of political connection there, which is frankly what you'd expect for someone who had risen up specifically through the Moscow Police Service. And in that, let me just put a little asterisk footnote there before giving the, the the final of the three reasons why I think this is particularly interesting. Generally speaking, there has been an attempt to maintain a rotation of cadres. So, in other words, within the security apparatus, FSB, police, and such like, people move from position to position horizontally as well as vertically. So you're you know you you. Move out. If you're in Moscow, you move out into the provinces before maybe moving back. And likewise, if you're in the provinces, at some point you you get into Moscow. And the reasons for that, well, one is to make sure that yeah, people have a breadth of experience, but also it's really to prevent people building up local power bases. It's to ensure that yes, of course, you know, you spend five years in wherever Vladimir. And you may well have your, your proteges and such like, but then when you get promoted to become police chief for, I don't know, Ingushetia, you might take a few of your cronies with you, but essentially you're having to start from scratch. So you are not actually becoming insulated behind a sort of a whole sort of machine of, of your own uh, proxies and yes men. Well, that's the idea. Now, in practice, though, this has been falling down of late. And in part, it's for the most obvious reasons that if you get to St. Petersburg and above all Moscow, you want to stay there because your quality of life, because the political opportunities and so forth there are vastly greater in most cases than out in the provinces. So although the people who are the real high flyers who absolutely have been tipped for the top handful of jobs will still have to go and punch their card out in the provinces at some point. It's kind of seen as a, a political necessity as much as anything else. For a lot of people, they're never going to get that chance. So the kind of you know, provincial officer who maybe you know, would have got their second or third position in Moscow, when they're still quite junior, but at least they, they get their crack at it, they have their chance to try and impress the, the really important bigwigs, but also just simply they get to enjoy life in, in, the, in the capital... It doesn't happen and likewise the sort of Muscovite cops and I'm using cops also to mean security officers and National Guard and all that kind of thing but anyway the, the Muscovites who once upon a time would have again at least had some kind of travel out of the city get a different set of perspectives different set of what the country is like what their job is like and so forth they cling to their perks very very sort of determinedly that's something that's worth mentioning for one very very specific reason It Likewise, it broke down in the late Brezhnev era, and that contributed massively to, frankly, the corruption of the security apparatus. Those very agencies, the police and the KGB, which were meant to be, in effect, Moscow's eyes and ears, to keep corrupt local officials in check. Not necessarily honest, but at least still under the control of the center. Well, If you more or less reconcile yourself to the fact that you're not going to be getting a chance to move to the centre and that actually probably, you know, whatever republic or whatever city you're in now is where you're probably going to end up for the rest of your career. You have every incentive not to side with Moscow but to side with the locals because after all these are the people who can put nice little side gigs your way. These are the people who, you know, will... Uh, Make sure that your kid gets a a good job. These are the people whose sons and daughters, your kids, are going to be marrying. You know, for all these kind of reasons, they tend to get integrated within corrupt local circles. And instead of becoming Moscow's control mechanisms, become part of the krisha, the roof, the cover. And instead reporting back, yeah, everything's fine, while they're covering up what's going on in the region. So again, that's just something that it's worth watching if this process continues into the future. Sorry, I mean this is this is me. I'm, I'm indeed a security services and forces nerd. So I inflict that upon you. So Kostiev is Kolokoltsev's man. He is I wouldn't necessarily say Sabyanin's man, but certainly linked to Sabyanin, which also tends to mean linked with that kind of more technocratic and pragmatic wing of politics. And also what's interesting is he has we know tussled with the National Guard, Rosgvardiya, Remember, this is the sort of the the, the public order service that is under Putin's Doberman, General Zolotov. Um, And for reasons both, I think, of just general bureaucratic infighting, but also because of tactics and methods. I understand that especially in his time when he was head of the sort of public service, uh, sorry, public security directorate within Moscow, and then in a way took that responsibility to his role as, as deputy chief of police, you know, he, he definitely clashed with both uh, the agencies that were to make up the National Guard and then after the National Guard's formation in 2016, actually the National Guard itself. Which again, I mean, you know, let's not push this too far. Not least because the fact of, you know, the, the level of resources, the level of political freedom of manoeuvre he may have could well be entirely limited. But so far, he looks like he's a professional. In other words, not a political appointment. He's essentially about policing and law enforcement rather than political control. He certainly has been able to get on with pretty pragmatic and technocratic administration and conversely has demonstrated a will to stand up to the more heavy-handed security agencies. So, you know, this, this might be a good thing. But in part, this is the last thing I'd want to make about this. I would suggest this appointment also reflects the fact that the impulse for reform for the prison system, obviously we're used to civil society calling for it, but actually what's interesting is we're getting a lot of impulse now coming from within the law enforcement agencies. And I'm definitely drawing a line between law enforcement and the political security, so not the FSB, not the National Guard. But for example, um, earlier in November, 16th of November, the prosecutor general Igor Krasnov speaking in the State Duma really strongly called out sin and the status of the prison system, highlighting the poor conditions, highlighting the abuses of inmates, highlighting the endemic violence within the system. You know, he really did not pull his punches. So we have the prosecutor general speaking out for this, and it's also very clear that we're actually also getting considerable Uh, dissatisfaction with what's been going on within the prison system and within sin from within the interior ministry and again it's not because necessarily they are they are bleeding hearts it's that what they fully understand is that corruption and violence within the prison system actually contributes to recidivism instead of reforming people it actually this is a sweeping comment breaks them further so when they are released then actually they continue or go back into a life of crime. And in some cases, again, this is something that the police have highlighted, actually go into much, much more serious crimes. So this is the essence of the kind of reforms, piecemeal, very, very specific and sectoral. But nonetheless, there are kinds of reforms that still are possible within the Putin system. And again, all I'm going to say is possible reforms that are driven by pragmatic technocratic reasons that do not challenge the power of the state but on the other hand what they implicitly do is try and limit the arbitrary and corrupt elements of that state so in this respect this looks like it sounds like it seems like a little bit of good news and isn't a little upbeat note like that a suitable point to have a quick break and a quick sip of tea just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash Shadows, And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. have a short part two in which I'll address a couple of questions that patrons have sent in, one that connects to my recent trip to Moscow and one that certainly doesn't. So let's start with the one that doesn't. I was asked the question what I thought about the proposal that has been floated in the US Congress not to recognise Putin as the president of Russia if he stays after 2024, on the grounds that the constitutional amendment which allows him to stay longer was not done in sort of full accordance with the law and the constitution. Well, what I think of it is that it's a stupid idea. But let me explain why. First of all, look, it is entirely needlessly going to annoy not just Putin which, frankly, I don't really care too much about, but Russians as a whole. I've noticed that even amongst Russians who may well be themselves thoroughly critical of Putin and the regime, they do also feel often very uncomfortable with the idea of the Americans coming in and telling them how things should be done. So I do feel that in that respect it is just needlessly provocative. Secondly, it will have no positive effects. It's essentially just about performative virtue signalling. It's about saying we are able and willing to say what is right and proper and we therefore cast moral shade on you. It is not in any way going to seriously influence in a negative way the, the regime. It's not going to empower any opposition or anything like that. Quite the opposite. The trouble is that what this then means is that those Russians who are themselves critical of the constitutional change, who themselves do not believe that Putin should be allowed to stay in power after 2024, suddenly become tarnished as somehow mouthpieces of the Americans. Remember, this is the, the, frankly, sophisticated and nasty trap which is embodied within the foreign agents laws. And the more to the point, the kind of the wider political campaign all around it is that As soon as you can draw some kind of a parallel between domestic opposition and what is being said from without, then you use that to claim that somehow the domestic opponents are just simply fifth columnists and cat's paws of foreign subversion. So I don't think it's useful in that respect. And the final point I'd make is, look, this would be entirely hypocritical until The United States also, for example, refuses to treat Xi Jinping as China's legitimate leader. And in particular, until it refuses to call Saudi Arabian King Salman anything other than calling him Mr. Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud. The point of the matter is that the United States is perfectly happy to deal with leaders who do not and cannot claim a a democratic mandate, so long as either they produce the cheap smartphones that we all want, or they are strategic allies. So, look, I have no problem with a moral foreign policy. I'm just simply going to say that if you're going to have a moral foreign policy, you have a moral foreign policy. It has to apply to all your relationships, not just the Russians. The second question, which does relate more specifically to to my time in Moscow, was essentially about the economy. And I was asked, although it's clear that there, you know, there, there is, I mentioned in, in one of my postcards from Moscow, segments, you know, a lot of construction going on in the city and a lot of continued signs of affluence and, and development. You know, but nonetheless, we know that ordinary Russians are absolutely feeling the squeeze, continued real-term decline in their standard of living. So, From what I could see, the question was, how are ordinary Russians coping with this situation? Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of make, do and mend. There's a certain amount of of belt tightening. But what I really wanted to kind of focus on is that it it raised for me something that I, I noticed quite strikingly, which is the increased presence of Lombards, in other words, pawn shops, where you go in and you essentially exchange some item of value, I don't know, a watch or whatever else, in return for a short-term loan, which if you do not redeem, with obviously the appropriate interest, then the pawn shop owner will sell that item in order to recoup their losses. So, pawn shops and also second-hand shops, both of which in their own way, I think, represent a reflection of hard times and, sort as I say, marginal economies, but on a smaller rather than a larger scale. It's quite interesting. I remember reading stuff about pawn shops in in Britain in the period of the Great Depression, in other words, in interwar era, but also back in in the 19th century, where it was actually not at all unusual, for example, because people were often being paid on a daily basis, that uh, a, a trader or an artisan might pawn his best coat on a Monday, hoping to be able to redeem it on Saturday so that he could wear it to church on a Sunday. So actually, I mean, this is quite normal ways in which people try, try to make do with situations where they are not facing total and utter indigence and poverty, but in order to make up momentary shortfalls, in order to keep up appearances and so forth, they look to other ways of, of making a little bit of money. After all, I mean, in September, household debt was at an all-time high, and overall, the, the, the debt burden—in other words, how much people are having to pay to service or, or pay off their debts—it was something like 11.7 percent of average income, and that, well, that's up because it was—it was actually less than 11 percent before coronavirus. Hard to know how much it's coronavirus or just simply the the general slippage of the economy that that accounts for that. But nonetheless, it's there. And therefore, no wonder that a study by the Higher School of Economics found that 69% of respondents were saying that they were indeed experiencing financial difficulties. Yet, although, particularly in September... Russians, many Russians, not all, received all kinds of subsidies and sweeteners, because after all the run-up to the state Duma elections when there was a bit of desperate attempts at vote buying, the evidence is this money was not splurged. It didn't go on luxury items, on consumption, on holidays or whatever, rather it was spent on basics and it was spent on paying down debt in a fairly kind of responsible sort of way. And In some ways, I conclude by saying that's maybe a bit of a metaphor. Because although the Kremlin itself, the government, has some huge cash reserves, nonetheless, it's acting much like an ordinary consumer at the moment. It is squirrelling away what it can. It is spending on what it feels it must, though obviously its notion of must also includes things like supporting the incursion in the Donbass more money for the military, etc. But nonetheless, it actually resists attempts to spend money precisely because of its assumption that there may well be a rainier day ahead. And as I said, I think this is something that unites the the grandees in their golden cages at the very top of the system with just your ordinary day-to-day Russian. A continued belief that no matter how rainy today is, It could get rainier tomorrow. And there I'll end, while hoping that you, wherever you are, are having a much sunnier day. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.